Greetings from Covenant Hope Church of Dubai. My name is Mark Donald. I have the pleasure of serving as one of the elders at the church. Um, we are in a summer series in the Psalms, so if you will, turn in your Bibles to Psalm 97. We're continuing a series through uh, the fourth book of the Psalter, and so we'll be spending our time in Psalm 97 today. Special arrivals are a cause for great joy. As the day of my baby Charlotte's arrival drew near, our anticipation as a couple and even as a family in the church, it grew. We didn't know exactly when she'd arrive. We had a lot of joy in the days leading up to her arrival, but we knew that that would be eclipsed when we met her face to face. In our passage, Psalm 97 reflects on the most anticipated arrival of all and the joy that it will bring. So as we've seen over the last several weeks, as we've been studying through Psalms 92 and 93 and 94 and 95 and 96, we've seen that the psalmist overall has one theme. He's reflecting on the King who is the Lord. And last week in Psalm 96, we heard a summons an invitation to the whole world, including the nations, to worship the king because the king is coming, it said at the end of the psalm. His arrival is approaching, and when he comes, he will judge, it said. The king will extend his righteous rule to the very ends of the earth, and all who stand against him, those in, who stand in opposition to him, will be conquered, will be vanquished. But he welcomes all who bow in submission and worship to him in homage. He welcomes them to come to him and to find joy and peace. But what will that day be like? When the king comes, what will happen? What will it be like? How will the world respond when he arrives? How will you respond when he arrives? In our passage today, Psalm 97, the psalmist describes the awe and the joy that the coming of the king will bring to the world and especially to his people. So turn there, if you're not already, to Psalm 97 and follow along as I read it aloud. The Lord reigns. Let the earth rejoice. Let the many coastlands be glad. Clouds and thick darkness are all around him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. Fire goes before him and burns up his adversaries all around. His lightnings light up the world. The earth sees and trembles. The mountains melt like wax before the Lord, before the Lord of all the earth. The heavens proclaim his righteousness, and all the peoples see his glory. All worshippers of images are put to shame, who make their boast in worthless idols. Worship him, all you gods. Zion hears and is glad. The daughters of Judah rejoice because of your judgments, O Lord. For you, O Lord, are most high over all the earth. You are exalted far above all gods. O you who love the Lord, hate evil. He preserves the lives of his saints. He delivers them from the hand of the wicked. Light is sown for the righteous, 
and joy for the upright in heart. Rejoice in the Lord, O you righteous, and give thanks to his holy name. Let's go to the Lord now and ask for his help as we think about this passage. Heavenly Father, we give you praise for your word. We give you praise because you reign. You're the Lord who reigns on high. You have overcome your enemies and you will bring your reign in fullness when King Jesus returns. Lord, we praise you because you are righteous and the throne of your kingdom is one that's founded on righteousness and justice. We praise you because you're holy. And Lord, we pray that you'd help us to love you more and to live for you, to hate sin and evil and to love holiness. Lord, we pray all of this for the glory of your son, Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. The main idea of the psalm, Psalm 97, is this. Rejoice in the coming king. Rejoice in the coming king. The psalm begins with an incredible description of the king's arrival in verses 1 through 7, and it concludes with the joy of his people, the joy that his arrival brings to them in verses 8 through 12. And so those will be the main points of this sermon, the two main points, the king's arrival and his people's joy. The king's arrival and his people's joy. Look with me at verses 1 through 7 where we see a description of the king's arrival. It begins, the Lord reigns, which has been the refrain of these psalms that we've been looking at over the last several weeks, proclaiming Yahweh, the God of Israel, as king. But as we see here in verse 1, Yahweh's reign is cause for the whole world to rejoice, not just Israel, for the many distant coastlands of the world to be glad. His arrival is reason to rejoice because he comes to make all things right. He comes to make all things new. And when the king appears, all that's wrong in the world will be undone in the blink of an eye. Just take a moment to try and imagine that. Try to imagine for a moment existing in a world that had no pain or sorrow. Picture living without any worry or fear of evil or what tomorrow might bring. Try to fathom what total freedom from sin in your heart would be like. When the king arrives, it will be so. No wonder that the Lord comes to reign and all of creation shouts in praise and gladness and rejoicing. The psalmist anticipates that day when Yahweh arrives to establish his kingdom on earth. The psalmist describes God's presence in a series of vivid images in this poem or this song that we read. And these images are to, to trigger us. They're to trigger awe in us. They're to lead us to worship. Just listen to the way that, he, that he's described. It's, it's almost apocalyptic. It is apocalyptic. It's the end of the world as we know it. Look at verses 2 through 5. Listen to some of the words. Clouds and thick darkness are all around him. Fire going out before him. His lightnings which light up the whole earth. 
Mountains melt like wax before him. The earth trembles and shakes. You know, growing up here in Dubai in the United Arab Emirates, in the middle of the Middle East, I didn't see many storms. But on one visit to Chicago one summer for our summer holidays, I remember running around and playing outside in a friend's backyard. I remember it was, the sun was shining, it was a beautiful day, it was much cooler than it would have been here in Dubai during the summer. And so I was out and about running and playing. I took my shoes off, the grass was green, it was lovely. And then after playing for some time, I went inside to grab a drink. I ran inside because I was thirsty and I wanted to quench my thirst. And within just a few moments of entering the house, darkness began to descend on the whole city, on the whole place. The windows seemed darker and a storm had just rolled in. It was a totally new experience for me. Here in Dubai, we have rain sometimes, but we don't have storms like this one. And it happened so quickly. It's... It was so staggering to me. And I remember as a kid, I was kind of excited because, you know, being a Dubai child, I hadn't experienced something like this. But pretty quickly, the rain began to pour down like I hadn't seen before. And I remember thinking, oh no, my shoes, they will be getting soaked outside in the garden. And so I ran to get them. And just as I exited the house, the the heavens started to pour down, lightning shot across the sky and began to light up the sky. Huge booms of thunder rang almost immediately after the lightning, which meant that it was really close. And my excitement turned into, from amazement into terror pretty quickly. Almost, almost immediately because of the power of the storm. And here in this text, it's like the Lord is wearing that kind of power. It surrounds him. It's all around him. And if that weren't enough, we're told that fire goes before him and it burns up his adversaries. When kings arrived in a territory to establish their rule, generally they'd send troops before them, a conquering troop before them to put down any resistance or opposition. However, Yahweh doesn't need troops because fire itself conquers his adversaries. Fire goes before him. Fire is powerfully destructive. It's often impossible to contain. I I wonder if you recall at the end of last year, at the end of 2019, in about November... That feels like an age ago, but there were devastating fires all across Australia. They began and they spread from state to state within that that continent, and the government declared a state of emergency. Many people fled to the shore, to the beaches for shelter. Lives were lost. Thousands of homes were destroyed by the fires. Over 25 million acres of land were totally devastated. That's about the size of South Korea. Fire is powerful and destructive and virtually unstoppable at times. 
And finally, we're told if, if even that weren't enough, we're told that mountains simply melt like wax before the Lord, like candles of wax. Mountains like Everest, which humans say they have conquered when it takes them several months and tons of planning and expense to climb to the summit of. Mountains like that just dissolve before the Lord. They don't even slow him down. No obstacle can get in his way. The psalmist uses these vivid images to help us feel the power and the majesty of the Lord's presence when he arrives. But you know, this description here, it shouldn't just make us think of the power of storms or even fires or even make us just think of the great power of the Lord if he has these things. No, this imagery is actually pointing us back. It's pointing us back to God's presence when he came, when he arrived at Mount Sinai. When God arrived at the mountain after he had delivered his people, the Israelites from Egypt, where they were enslaved. Listen to how Moses described that event in Exodus 19. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain. The psalmist here is picking up this imagery and this language from Exodus to show us that God's glorious presence in the past was just a preview of his coming presence in the future. It's like the trailer of a movie to the real full movie itself. The Lord revealed his mighty power in the Exodus when he conquered Pharaoh and the gods of Egypt. He did that by great acts of judgment. His comforting presence led his people through the desert with a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. But the people met the Lord in his glory when he descended on Mount Sinai and spoke to them from the mountain. Imagine for a moment what that would have looked like. That mountain would have looked as if it was literally melting in the sight of the people. You would see flames and smoke going upward and lightning and earth trembling coming down. But God wasn't showing off at Sinai. He revealed himself in majesty in order to make his covenant with those people to establish them as a kingdom to himself, to give them his law, to have his rule over them, to be their king. That's why God 
did that then. The Israelites freaked out by the holy presence of the Lord on top of Mount Sinai, told Moses, don't let God speak to us anymore. You go and speak to him. And so terrifying, so terrifying was the sight that even Moses himself said, I tremble with fear. God's glorious presence wrapped in cloud and thick darkness, sending forth lightning and fire is terrifying. But we've skipped over one detail that the psalmist includes, which makes a world of difference. We see the character of this king in verse 2. The character of the king is described this way. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. His rule is one that is righteous and just. The king is not only majestic and powerful to behold, he's good. The foundation of his reign on earth is his own righteous and just character. And so everything that the king does is right. Every decision that he makes is fair. Every law that he gives promotes love. Every word that he speaks is true. If he were not righteous and just, his arrival would be horrifying. A wicked, a wicked king wielding such strength and destructive power would be terrifying. But this king reigns in righteousness. He judges justly. And he leads in love. C.S. Lewis wrote some children's books, and one of them, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, in his Narnia series, captures this idea beautifully. When one of the children asks one of the citizens of Narnia about the king of Narnia, the Lord Aslan, in the story. And Mr. Beaver, this character, says, Aslan is a lion. He's the lion. The great lion. Oh, said Susan, I'd thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. The Lord isn't safe, but he's good, as we see here in these first several verses. Our psalm declares this coming king, when he will establish his righteous reign. The psalmist reflects on God's presence in the past to prophesy about his arrival in the future, when at last the world's true king comes to save it. So let me ask you, have you thought about the arrival of the Lord recently? Have you considered when he comes to put all things right and to undo every wrong? Is this the vision that you have of God in your mind? One of a consuming fire of holiness that can't stand wickedness and his enemies. Righteous and just, robed in power, full of glory worthy of your worship and your praise. Verse 6 echoes Psalm 19 in reminding us that God's righteousness and his glory that we see here 
they're already proclaimed, not only in his coming, but even in the creation that he's made. It's as if the skies above are speaking to us and they're telling us that there is a glorious creator and we ought to worship him. All the peoples of the earth see, the psalmist says, God's glory in the things that he's made. The Apostle Paul in the New Testament makes this very same point in Romans chapter 1. He says this, for what we can for what can be known about God is plain to them. That's the peoples of the earth. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images. God is the king. He is the creator. He deserves all the worship. He demands all the praise. When God showed himself at Sinai, he gave his people ten commandments first. And the first two of the ten commandments were this. You shall have no other gods before me, and you shall not make for yourselves a carved image to worship. And when he comes again, when the king comes, we see the result in verse 7. All worshippers of images are put to shame, those who make their boast in worthless idols. God hates idolatry. He is jealous for his glory. He alone is holy, and he won't share the worship that only he deserves with others. Some of you come from places and even come from backgrounds where literal images were worshipped. Some of the people in our church used to follow other gods. They would worship carved figures representing gods to be honoured. And perhaps it's even thought that the more gods you have, the merrier. Maybe you think that too. Just adding one more god to the collection might actually help you. But what kind of gods are those if they are limited in their power and happy to share their worship with others. Yahweh, the creator Lord of the universe, says, no, worship me. Even the gods are summoned to fall down before the Lord, just as Dagon, the god of the Philistines, did before the ark of the Lord when it was captured by them. Bow down before the king of the cosmos, the Lord of all lands, because this king alone is worthy of worship. But you know, idolatry doesn't only come in the form of images, and false gods aren't always built into statues. Idolatry is often much more deceptive than that, and it can even take root in the heart of Christians. Idols can be anything that takes the place of first importance in your heart. 
anything that competes with God for your heart's affections. Simply anything that we put before God. The theologian John Calvin famously said that our hearts are idol factories. They mass produce idols. And he explained that we're so prone to doing this, to creating idols, even if only in the heart, because we find it so hard to believe God is really for us or with us unless he shows himself physically. And so we put our faith, hope and trust in things that can be seen or touched or felt. Even good things like money or jobs or status or spouses, which We're never meant to claim that place because only God is. And because idolatry operates in the subtlest shadows of our hearts, we're often completely oblivious to our idols. So how do we identify if we've made something, even something good, an idol in our lives? Well, to be honest with you, it is hard work. It's going to take time and effort and self-examination and honesty and openness. And it requires other people to help us because we're so often blinded by our idols. They're like a stumbling block before our face. They blind us, and so we don't see. We have no idea that we have them. Here are some questions for you to consider individually or with your spouse, or with someone who you're discipling or is discipling you, someone in your church. Questions for you to consider. Now these questions aren't a perfect test to determine idolatry, but they're more of a guide to help you examine your hearts, and to see if there's anything that might be ruling on the throne of your heart in the place of God. First of all, what makes you most excited? Or what can't you help talking to other people about? Sharing with other people. Because verse 7 tells us that the things we worship are often the things that we boast about or praise highly with our words. This psalm is an example of proclaiming and praising the King who is coming in His glory. But oftentimes we will see what are the idols in our heart by what it is that we're most excited about to praise or to speak about. Another question to ask is, what makes you feel proudest? What makes your self-esteem feel strong? Because what we boast about reveals what we treasure most. Another way of saying this is, what do you want other people to know about you? What do you want to be known for? One more question to consider asking to reveal idols that might be in your heart are who or what do you run to for comfort when things get really difficult? Where do you turn when things are hard? Identifying our idols is only the beginning. Once we've identified them, we have to kill them. We have to put them to death. We must repent of them in other words, and return to God and put him in in his rightful place on the throne of our hearts. Ultimately, we can find idolatry at the root of every sin that we commit or struggle with. Every temptation reveals a potential idol to us because sin is fundamentally idolatrous. 
Let me explain. Sin, when we do things that are wrong, things that are opposed to God and His ways and His word, we do those things because our hearts desire something more than they desire to please God. So, covenant hope. As we confess our sins to one another, that's a good start. It's great to share and confess your sins. But let's try to do the hard work of probing more deeply to see what it is that's ultimately ruling our hearts when we sin. What is it that we're seeking and trusting in and hoping in? What idol we've put in the place of God is the thing that we need to turn away from. And that's where true change will come. What gifts are we seeking our ultimate joy in over the giver of all good gifts himself, God. One of the greatest weapons in fighting against idolatry is to grow in knowing the Lord. When you contemplate him in all his majesty, as we've seen in these first few verses, the temptation to worship anything else seems silly. That temptation will dwindle. And like the sunrise causes the stars to disappear, having a glorious view of God and who he is makes all these other idols disappear as well. When the king comes, all who are found worshipping idols will be put to shame. All his adversaries, everyone who stands against the Lord, will be conquered. The shame of the idolaters stands in stark contrast with the gladness and joy of believers, which is the focus of the psalmist in the rest of the psalm in verses 8 through 12, which leads us to our second point, his people's joy. The king's people's joy. The psalm began with the earth being called to rejoice and the coastlands to be glad, but now the attention turns to God's people. Unlike the worshippers of idols, they have been expecting the king, longing for his return. They wait eagerly, like a wedding party awaits the arrival of the bridegroom. They're glad now, but when he appears, their joy will be complete. In verses 8 and 9, God's people, who are identified as Zion, are described as already being glad. And the daughters of Judah are already rejoicing when he appears. They've heard the king is coming, and it's good news. He's kept his word, and his judgments bring his people great joy. He's coming to reign over all the earth, to right every wrong, to overcome his enemies, to restore his people. To judge the wicked, every wrong deed will be judged. But if we're honest, how is this good news for anyone? God's people had received the Ten Commandments from the Lord at Mount Sinai. And before Moses could even come down from the mountain, they'd already broken those first two commandments I gave you earlier. They had set up golden images, golden calves, and we're worshipping them. And we are no different. We give our hearts in worship to all kinds of idols. 
How can they or we be glad and rejoice because of God's judgments, as verse 8 says? Because they had faith that God would keep his promises. They had faith that he'd come to save his people, even his sinful people. And they would be saved from an even greater problem than being slaves in Egypt. They knew that the king would save his people, that he would be a refuge for them, a fortress to all who come to him in faith. And we see this fulfilled with God sending his son, King Jesus, not yet robed in glory, but humbly veiled in flesh. He became a man. He came to establish God's kingdom on earth, not by destroying his enemies, but by dying for them. God executed justice when Christ, his son, willingly took the judgment for all his people's sin on himself when he bore our sins on the cross and died in our place. Jesus experienced the consuming fire of God's wrath against sin and he satisfied it entirely. And then he rose from the grave in victory over sin and death to show God's righteousness, to show God's holiness. And he ascended into heaven, but he'll come again on the clouds of heaven. That's how we're told he'll come back, on the clouds of heaven with a loud voice and a trumpets and sounds, just like here in verses 2 through 5. The coming of the king described in this psalm will be fulfilled when King Jesus returns to judge and to save, to conquer and to redeem, to right every wrong and to restore the world to perfect harmony. That's why we rejoice, because justice has been met at the cross for everyone who has turned from their sins and put their faith and trust in him. That's why we are glad. Now, perhaps you're listening to this recording and you are not a Christian. I wonder what you think about this news. That the king of all creation is coming back to judge the world. And for those who are not trusting in him, it will be a terrible day. Worse than any mind could imagine. But for those who are trusting in King Jesus, resting in his finished work at the cross, And waiting for his return, it will be a day of greatest joy. This joy can be yours too, friend. Repent of your sins against this holy God who is an all-consuming fire. Turn and trust in King Jesus who defeated our sin and conquered death. Brothers and sisters, does this thought of the Lord's return bring you joy? Or would you be disappointed if Christ came back tomorrow? There are all kinds of things that I look forward to in the future. But if there is something that I look forward to more than his return, then that thing is almost certainly an idol. For example, as I mentioned at the beginning... Of this sermon, our baby Charlotte arrived eight weeks ago and she's been the source of great joy for us. She's lovely. She's probably the loveliest baby that ever was born, ever, anywhere, at any time, other than Jesus. 
She's growing each and every single day. She's even started to smile at us, which is so wonderful. And I long for and anticipate and look forward to with great excitement the day when she'll be able to walk or we'll be able to play and talk, maybe go on trips together. But I must remember the joy of those things that they might bring is nothing in compare to the joy of the Lord when he returns and what that will bring. I must meditate on that joy how far it will eclipse any other joys in our lives. Allowing that joy to fuel my love for him now as I wait. In the final three verses of the psalm, the author offers a mixture of exhortations and encouragements. Exhortations and encouragements that urge holiness that leads to happiness. Holiness that leads to happiness. First, he exhorts those who love the Lord to hate evil. God hates evil. His fire consumes it. And so if we love God, we'll hate what he hates. How could we not? Evil and sin are what keep us from enjoying him. Sin is what drove Jesus to the cross in our place. We were enslaved to sin, but Christ came to set us free. So why would we submit again to the slavery of sin and evil? No, we must hate it. We can't love God and love wickedness. We can't enjoy God and enjoy evil. God and evil are polar opposites. So to love one is to hate the other. We can't hate evil enough. You can't grow in hating evil too much. We must constantly be taking up weapons and warring against evil and sin in our hearts. But how do we do that, you might ask? How do we war? What weapons do we use? Well, first, we do attack. And second, we do defense. We attack and we defend. First, we attack by growing in hatred for evil, by recounting the devastating effects of sin and evil in our world and in our lives. Sin promises satisfaction to us, but it actually lies. It delivers only shame. Evil hurts our relationships with everyone in our lives. It especially hurts our relationship with the Lord. When we commit evil against him. Wickedness comes with a great cost as well. The shed blood of King Jesus or an eternity apart from him. Reflecting on the cross reminds us how evil evil really is and how much it offends our holy God. Second, we do defense. We defend by growing in our love for the Lord. Loving God more and more will loosen sin's grip in our lives. Our love for God is strengthened when we reflect on his promises, like those that are mentioned here in these final few verses. It says, The Lord preserves the lives of his saint and delivers them from the hand of the wicked. Hating evil often puts you at odds with those who love sin. 
the wicked. But God strengthens his saints. His saints means his holy ones, those that are pursuing righteousness and holiness in their lives. And no one can snatch them from his hands. Nothing in all of creation can separate us from his love in Christ Jesus our Lord. No enemies can stand against us, even if they take our lives, our souls are held in his hand. Not only that, but we see that light and joy are spoken of like seeds being planted in the hearts of the righteous. The Lord's rule in our lives will blossom into a harvest of bliss for his people. God has designed humanity to find their greatest joy in loving and following him. Every man, woman, child, wherever you're from, your greatest joy will be found in knowing and loving God. Do you long for joy? Give yourself to knowing him and loving him more and more. And you will find ever increasing joy in him. That's the hope of eternity for every believer. We won't stop learning more and more and enjoying him more and more. Living in ever increasing joy for his glory. But it begins now as we learn to love God and live for righteousness here on earth. Pastor John Piper has spent his whole ministry trying to help Christians see this reality. That God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied, when we enjoy him the most. That the God of the universe has designed it in such a way that what will bring him the greatest glory is when we find our greatest joy in him. What a kind God. So let's strive to find our joy and gladness in him and him alone. But we don't strive alone. God has also designed and given us the community of people to do this with. He's given us the gift of the church to spur one another on. Augustine said, That when large numbers of people share their joy in common, the happiness of each is greater because each adds fuel to the other's flame. So Covenant Hope, as you enjoy God, share it with others. Tell them about what you've learned about him from his word. Tell them about what he's been teaching you about himself and his power, his might, his majesty, his tenderness, his compassion. Give thanks for it to God. And if you struggle to do this, if you think, Mark, I I almost never feel those things. I never feel a, a great overwhelming sense of joy and gladness as I read the scriptures. If that's a struggle for you, then surround yourself with people who love him and want to know him more and more and want to talk to him about it. It's contagious. We add fuel to each other's fire. And that's why the psalmist wrote this song for the people of God to rejoice. He says at the end of the at the end of the psalm, the last verse, rejoice in the Lord, O you righteous, and give thanks to his holy name. Joy saturates the psalm 
from beginning to end. We don't find joy by looking for it. We find it by looking to the Lord. From the beginning of the psalm to the end, we see creation and God's people rejoicing in him, the coming king. As we waited for Charlotte to arrive, our household, that is Hannah and I, the Abrahams and Thelma Asandu, we made guesses about which day we thought it would be that she would come. And we wondered aloud often, maybe every day, is today the day? Is she coming today? That's how we as Christians ought to rejoice and anticipate the king's arrival. And as the day of his return draws nearer and nearer, let us rejoice, knowing that he reigns and that he'll come soon. And that when he does, that we'll enjoy him forevermore. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you praise. You are worthy of worship. You are worthy of honour. You are glorious and mighty and powerful and good. And we praise you for all these things. And Lord, you've shown your holiness and your goodness and your tenderness and mercy to us most fully in your Son, Jesus. Lord, we give you praise for sending Christ in the likeness of human flesh, that he came and he lived as a man and he went to the cross in our place to deliver us from your wrath which is to come so that when you come back we might be filled with joy and gladness, that we might enjoy you forevermore. And Lord, we pray that you would add to our number. We pray that you would lead others to turn from their idols, to turn from their sin and to trust in Christ and what he's done by dying the death that we deserve at the cross and rising again. Lord, we pray this all for his glory and your glory alone, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen.